So I'm just curious, uh, how many of you have been at work all day? Have you been at work? And, and here you are uh, with so much energy. Where do you get your energy? You've probably been up really early, right? And still you come to the temple and you have energy to glorify Krishna. I am so impressed by all of you. Thank you so much. I, it's very hard to do. But you, you put Krishna in the beginning, you put Krishna in the end, you sandwich it in with your work, but good for you. Your, your destination is guaranteed. You will all go back to God in this lifetime if you just continue doing this. Very impressive. So, um, I'm going to speak a little while, uh, and then what I'd like to do is just stop and, and let us chew it up, you know, discuss. Because the more we discuss a topic, the deeper and more complex it becomes. It's like chewing, uh, chewing a mango, it becomes more sweet the more we chew it. So, um, first of all, I wanted to ask... Uh, what did you find interesting about the topic title of tonight's talk? Um, obviously, you must have read that we were going to have talk titled something. The title was uh, what? Attraction and envy in relationship to Krishna. What was attractive to you about that? Why did you want to come and hear about that? Anybody? It talks about two extremes. Uh, the, on one hand, you have attraction towards Krishna, the other you have envy. Yeah. And uh, how can one's soul oscillate between two extremes? Good. And, and what propensities drive us to one particular pole rather than the other? Yes, thank you. Yes, that's, it's, it's odd to put those two words together. And what to speak of putting them together in relationship with Krishna? Thank you. So what, do, what does the word Krishna actually mean? What does that mean? Anybody? The all-attractive one. Yes. The one that everyone is attracted to. And what makes Krishna the one uh, that all living beings are attracted to? What is it about Krishna that is attractive? It's still your turn. What makes him attractive? Well, this is all the opulences. Okay. Anything else? Good answer. He's been reading. Right? He's been listening to you. So, what kinds of qualities that are attracted to, uh, that, that we are attracted to? Okay, what does that mean, being a Bhakta Vatsala? He is the protector of the devotees in any circumstances, whether you are fallen or elevated. Yes, that's sweet. He literally takes refuge in them. What? He literally takes refuge in them. Okay, thank you. So besides having six opulence, op op he's also the unconditional refuge of the devotees. So while some of us may have a few of these qualities in our personality, Krishna has all of them uh, completely 
in full at the same time. Uh, for example, we might find a person in the material world who is wealthy, maybe wealthy, famous, beautiful, and strong. Who can name someone you know in the material world who has four of the six qualities? Anybody? There are people without. They may have fame, wealth, beauty, and strength. You might have. What kind of what, what, what would you see somebody like that? Maybe a movie actor. Yeah, a famous singer like Angelina Jolie. There must be somebody in Bollywood who has some of that too, right? So that's a lot of opulence is when you think of four out of six. It's amazing. But although you, you'll see somebody like that, a movie star, uh, they might be beautiful and strong and wealthy and famous for a period of time. They're limited by the time factor that destroys all material beauty and strength after uh, some time. And even so-called uh, famous people they're, they're forgotten. They're forgotten in due course of time. I know in my uh, parents' youth, my mother's 91, so she was young in the 1940s. That was a big thing. And that was the era of Frank Sinatra, and I don't know who else, Bing Crosby, and, and, and they thought they were famous, beautiful, strong people. And then when our generation came along about 20, 30 years later, we were like, who's that? Who's that? And they, even when they showed us movies of these people, we were like, ew, they're not even attractive to us. <laughs> so it's kind of subject, subjective what their beauty is and what their strength is. And I, I also know that in my generation, when I was young, what we considered to be famous, beautiful, wealthy uh, people, actors and singers, when my sons, my oldest son is 42, and they don't know who, I guess people know who the Beatles are and those kind of things, but that's not interesting anymore. So we can see that, that a person's fame is very limited. It's very limited. Uh, many of the youth today, they look at who we thought was famous and beautiful as being has-beens. They're just like, nobody cares. So, uh, even if you may have those four qualities, wealth, uh, fame, beauty, and strength, you may not have uh, be renounced. It's very hard for a person to have wealth and also be uh, renounced and also to have knowledge. Uh, when, the, when the Vedic texts talk about knowledge, it's actually referring to realized knowledge, which is different than just having a lot of data or facts in the brain. Um, it's knowledge that a person practically lives by. It's a word we would, in English, we would actually use the word wisdom rather than knowledge because it means a person who really understands the natural laws moving the creative world and living in harmony with those natural laws. So this is what true renunciation means, to live one's life according to God's laws, which are also natural laws. And it also means, uh, wisdom or knowledge means to know how to use everything in God's service or for the benefit of creation. 
rather than just for some flickering sense gratification. So when we see someone who has uh, several of these six opulences, we're already attracted to them. Even if they have just one opulence, we see somebody who's really wealthy or someone who's really strong or really beautiful. Uh, we want to get close to them. It's kind of natural. You feel drawn. You're attracted. It's irresistible, almost. Uh, there's something very powerful about someone, even in the material world, who has even one of those opulences. And so we become attracted. And underneath that attraction, we may be hoping that if we associate with such persons, that might rub, on a, rub off on us, too. You know, hang around a wealthy person, maybe some of the wealth will rub off. Maybe if I hang around a strong person or a famous person, maybe some, maybe the spotlight will come on me, too. And um, I mean, it's a kind of a, that's a natural thing, right? You don't think about it. Nobody sure won't tell anybody that you think like that, but that's kind of what's happening. And that's what's happening when people go to movies and they pay millions of dollars for uh, to go and see a movie star. Um, there's something powerful about having an opulence, even one of those opulence. So um, we would also like to be powerful. That's the reality. We see something powerful, we would like to be powerful. And um, in some ways, it's because we see Krishna there. Um, but in other ways, it's also that we're envious that they have that quality. We would like to have it. That's what envy means. But that's the first part of the title, is our relationship with Krishna is attraction. And the second part uh, of the title is about how we're envious of that all-attractive person we call Krishna. So what, let's look at the other side. What does it mean when we use the word envy in relationship to people in the material world? So this is your turn. What does it mean when we are envious of people in the material world? We just talked about it a little bit. Yeah. Well, it's different than jealousy. If I'm jealous of something, I might be able to attain that if I do certain things. But if I'm generally envious of something, it's something I know that I'll never be able to attain. Okay, that's an interesting clarification. Never thought about it that way. But either way, you kind of want what somebody else has, right? Whether you can attain it or not. Yes. <laughs> kind of the but, 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 but envy, you'll, you'll never be satisfied. Jealousy, you can overcome. Right. Okay. Well, I hope so. We hope so. So we can we, we want something that somebody else has, and we can also apply this notion of this pre-personality Godhead. Uh, we try to imitate God either by aspiring to acquire his opulences, in, in separation from him, not acknowledging him, or we're attracted to someone who possesses Krishna's opulences without giving credit to the source of those opulences. Uh, we, don't, we don't make that connection. We're just looking at the opulence in the person, or we aspire for them, but we have no interest to uh, glorify the source of those opulences. So I said a moment ago in, uh, when we were talking about attraction that you might be hoping that by associating with such a beautiful, famous, strong, renounced, knowledgeable, wealthy person, that some of that will rub off on us and we become enamored thinking that this person is very great 
because they are famous, they're wealthy, they're beautiful. And we're ready to do almost anything for them, uh, to offer them service in so many ways, uh, because we're so attractive. And we might even be thinking, if we serve them, they're going to share some of their wealth, or their beauty, or their pain. And of course, this is an illusion, to think that another person can empower us with such opulences, because they're not the source. It's not where it comes from. So, you know, it's like going to, uh, I don't know, a tree and trying to get water out of a tree. It's not the source of the water's coming through the roots, but if you want to get water and have direct water, you need to go directly to the source of that water. Um, because the tree may be getting water, it may be flourishing because it has water, but it isn't the source. So in the same way, we cannot, we cannot, uh, get that opulence or any of those opulences by uh, trying to uh, serve something other than the source. So underneath all of this envy is the fact that we don't or we tend not to give credit where credit is due. We forget to acknowledge and be grateful for whatever wonderful thing we see in creation. We don't say thank you, or we glorify the source of the wonderful things. We may go to a park, we may go to a beach and see the beautiful ocean and, and the beautiful flowers and trees, and completely forget who's the creator of that? Where does it? Where do they come from? Um, yet we want to enjoy those things separately. So Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita that I am the ability of man and woman, and I'm the source. If it weren't for me, this person would not have such opulences. And I can take them away at any minute. That's how fragile we are. We may be very proud that we are wealthy or we are very knowledgeable or beautiful. But Krishna in a moment can take those away. We're, we're just so fragile. And um, nobody else can say that they give another person their abilities or opulences to Krishna. So let's, let's talk about what other ways we are envious of Krishna. There are other ways. Think, think of other ways we are envious of Krishna. There's three primary ways that we envy Krishna in the Srimad Bhagavatam. See if we can name some. Krishna is the supreme So, um, uh, well, first let's talk a little bit about uh, Krishna being the ultimate controller. Uh, most of our waking lives, uh, all of us are, are using our minds, thinking about and making plans to try and control in so many ways, right from the moment you wake up in the morning. Uh, we, can, we can think. Let's think together how, on a daily basis, we are all busy trying to control in so many ways, just to live our lives. What, what are we trying to control in our lives? 
it's open for guessing. <laughs> what do we try to control when we first get up every time, get up in the morning, and we have our day? Yo, I'm going to work all day. You must be controlling quite a bit. What happens if your car doesn't start? What happens if you don't pay your rent? What happens if there's nothing in the refrigerator? I mean, who puts all that there? You just sort of, depending on Krishna, if it's going to show up in your fridge or <laughs> somebody's going to pay your rent? No. We, we make that happen, right? And we have to think about how we're going to get that money so that we can buy all that stuff, so that we can control our life. For what reason? Why do we do that? Why do we work really hard to make money? Why do we do that? What happens if we don't? We die. Would you? Well, you will. Would you? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Have you tried it? No. Okay. Plenty yeah, yeah. of homeless guys who are not working in there somehow living. I don't know how they're doing that. But, um, but I mean, that's the point. We're afraid that we would die. We would be afraid that if we don't make money um, or we don't work hard, we may have to live in a circumstance we won't like. I mean, you may, you may live somewhere, you may have to live in a tent, you may have to live in the back of your car, but um, we're, we're afraid that if we don't work hard, we will have to live in circumstances that we don't like. Uh, we might have to even go to another country if we don't work hard. I bet, right? I don't know. I'm, I'm living in America and we have lots of Indians are there working and they know if they don't work, they their visa is up or something, There's right? So there's this pressure all the time that I better, I better make that happen because my life is dependent on it, my family's life is uh, depending on it. So the mind is underneath everything we do. There's this notion that I'm searching. How can I work? How can I work in order to make enough profit for myself so everyone related to myself, my family members, and the people I care about, I can uh, take care of. And why do we want to take care of ourselves and everybody? Why do we want to see that our family is taken care of? To see them happy. What? To see them happy. To see them happy, yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. We, we can't be happy if we see our family not happy, right? It's very easy for your family to make you not happy if they're not happy, <laughs> right? Just your kids are not happy, yeah, you know that if they're not happy, the wife's not happy, the wife's not happy, the husband's not happy. It's kind of a domino effect. So typically we work very hard to make people happy because otherwise my life will be miserable, right? Um, interestingly, that was Arjuna's dilemma on the battlefield. He was like, well, I'm not going to kill those people because I won't be happy sitting alone in my palace by myself. I want to have my family there and I want them to be happy. So that was his biggest issue. And even if we're not searching out how to gain wealth, we're also we're making all kinds of plans to secure even a little comfortable situation. Even the poorest person who's living in a plastic bag, a plastic tent on the side of the road, he has carved out a little spot for himself, maybe sweep the ants a little bit, you know, he has a little you know, sticks and making it, because he wants to have a, his own space. It's kind of a natural thing. So, Prabhupada said on many occasions, I think Saturday night when I was talking about Prabhupada memories, I quoted uh, a bridge Vasi who remembered being with Prabhupada and him saying to him very clearly, 
and I've heard him say this many times on other occasions, that, that if, we, if we are, uh, rather than chasing the money or wealth, which is one of Krishna's opulences, rather we needed to be chasing love for Krishna because he's the source and he can give us unlimited wealth if he chooses. If he's pleased with our devotion, money will come. So we sometimes get it backwards. You know, we will we will avoid or uh, uh, say compromise devotional activities because we think I don't have time. I don't have time. I need to I need to chase that money. But if we were to chase Krishna, you would probably see, and I've had experience of this myself, that some of those things would just come to you by Krishna's grace. Uh, Krishna is so kind. In fact. Uh, we were talking about this morning or yesterday morning about how if Krishna loves you, he will he will bestow upon you so many opulences, particularly wealth. A lot of people who take to Krishna consciousness suddenly get, get rich in the business, it goes well. But uh, then there's this thing that if Krishna really loves you, he takes it all away. <laughs> so people are like, oh God, you know, I love Krishna, but not that much. And so yeah, that, that's scary. That's a scary thought. If I really love Krishna, he's going to perhaps take all of that way. So the second way we envy Krishna is very tied to the first way, uh, control. And I think you said this about enjoyer. And this is we discussed about being, Krishna being the supreme controller because uh, the purpose of all of our controlling is that so we can enjoy. That's really what it's about. So they're tied together. And we're always making plans how we can control the environment so that we can be more comfortable and that we can enjoy. Now the third way uh, that we envy Krishna is kind of tricky because um, it doesn't seem like there's any problem with it at all. Uh, the, the, uh, we get confused because Krishna is the friend of everyone. And uh, we try to be the friend of everyone. Everybody wants to be liked. We also want to have friends and we want them to see us as a friend. So how can it be envy of Krishna for us to want to have people like us or to have uh, friends? So how is that a symptom of envy of Krishna? Uh, it's kind of a weird idea. But it says that in the Bhagavatam. So what kind of activities do we need to engage or cultivate friendship in the material world? What is required for us? Say in the material world, we've all had relationships with people at school or in work, and uh, we want to have those relationships for various reasons. What kinds of strategies do we have to, have to make friends? What does that require of us? Uh, and I'm not speaking about devotee association, because if you come to the temple and sing and eat together and stuff, develop the relationships will develop. But when you're out and about in the world, in school and in jobs and all of that, what do you have to do to develop a relationship? Find a common interest. Find a common interest? Okay, what else? Accept, accept people the way they are. Accept people the do you really accept people the way they are? Everyone's different. Yeah. But I mean, we, we that's that's a nice idea. And we may say that publicly, but underneath, I bet we have opinions when we see people. Don't we? Absolutely. And you have good judgment, bad judgment. Being judgmental is not the same as having good judgment or bad judgment. Judgment just means to be discerning. And But the mind is always accepting and rejecting. So we might say, if it's very politically correct today, to say, don't judge me, don't I'm, I'm 
loving you without judgment. But underneath, we are discriminating. We're seeing, hmm, I like that one, mm, don't like that one, mm, don't like their hair, mm, they smell bad. You know, that's what your mind is doing that. You may not, as a pure and perfect spiritual being, but the mind is always discriminating, right? So what else? As far as establishing and maintaining relationships with other people. We have to give them our time, attention, resources, energy. It's a lot of work, right? Yeah, he's he's right about that. Sounds like you've had a lot of experience with that, right? (laughs) That if you want to have friends in the material world, there's a lot of work involved. You've got to invite them for dinner, for coffee. You've got to reach out, ask, connect them where they are. You know, and and it's not just one time. You might meet somebody in standing in line at the grocery store. That's not really a friendship. It's an acquaintance. But if you want to have friends in the material world, there's an expectation that comes with it. You know that okay, I have had you to dinner tonight. Next week you better have me to dinner. Oh, and you better come to my birthday party, and you better give me a gift because you're my friend, right? So there's all kinds of uh, expectations tied to that. And um, the problem with it is, is that uh, once you start a relationship with someone in the material world, it requires maintenance. Like your car, you know, you can't just buy a car, you've got to wash it, you've got to change the oil and the water. So friendships have to be maintained. And uh, there's a limit to how much energy you can spend in it. you know, like on Christmas or Diwali, there's a limit to how many people, I don't know, if you all give gifts. I know in India they're giving a lot of sweets. When I lived in Vrindavan, there's a lot of sweet shops, isn't it? You're giving gifts, sort of thing. And so you might have to put a limit, a boundary around, okay, who am I giving gifts to? I have this little bit of money, how am I going to do it? So, uh, so it's not a bad thing to have friends. Uh, there's no harm in being friendly to people. But the problem with materialistic friendships is not sustainable. Why is it not sustainable? Why, why is it not sustainable to have materialistic friends? Um, I think especially in this day and age, there's so much pressure and emphasis put on being charismatic and being social and having a social life and enjoying the social life with your friends. It gets to a point of stress. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to balance yeah. the socialize the rest of the world. Yeah, so, right. And you can hardly keep up posting all your stuff on Facebook, right? Yeah. To make sure that everybody knows what I'm doing every minute. Who cares? But anyway, that's what we're doing because we have this natural tendency to want to connect and to have friends. But the, but uh, the reason why it's what I want to say that. So you become familiar and you start to find faults. Okay, that's a, that's a problem, right? If you get uh, too close. We're going to talk a little bit about that in a minute. Because the center is self and not the Krishna. Because the center is self, self mm-hmm. and not Krishna, right. So it's not sustainable. You can, only, uh, you can only give so much energy. You may be able to have two or three friends, but if you have a wide circle of friends, it's just not possible. Um, in the Srimad Bhagavatam, it describes that as water passes down a river, many straws and grasses are carried from the shore. These straws and grasses come together in the river's current, but when the waves toss, 
this way and that. They are separated and carried somewhere else. Similarly, the innumerable living entities within this material world are being carried by the waves of material nature. Sometimes the waves bring them together and then form friendships and relate to one another on the bodily basis of family, community, or nationality. And eventually they are thrown out of association by the waves of material nature. Another analogy about mundane friendships is that people are like a clump of leaves that are floating down a stream. And if when they hit a rock, the leaves all go in separate directions. So in the same way, our relationships in the material world, they may continue for a little while, but then something happens and then everybody goes their separate ways, no matter how hard you have tried to maintain a lasting relationship. So sometimes we try to be the friend of everyone, and um, like you were saying, it's not possible uh, because it, only Krishna is the friend that never leaves you. He goes with us even when we die, uh, when we pass out of these bodies. Krishna is also going with us. He's always uh, there speaking to us from within our hearts, and he will never reject us. And as you were saying, you know, if you get too close to a person, they start to see who you really are. Uh, Bhaktivinoda Thakur says that those are there are four stages in relationships, and one of them is the honeymoon stage when you see the nice parts. You know, people are trying to show you their best side. That happens also in marriage. It happens in the Hare Krishna movement. People imagine that the new people are perfect and pure, and they'll never hurt their feelings. And then you get a little closer, and you start to see, oh, when they brush their teeth, they spit on the, the wearer, or they, they don't pick up their dirty socks, or whatever it is. When you get close to people, you start to see they're not perfect. And that's okay. I think that's a good thing for us. And often, when we reach this disillusionment stage, we break up or we go away. And uh, But the, the next stage, if you have made a promise in a relationship, is tolerance, learning to tolerate. And when we learn to tolerate and accept a person for who they are, then true love can actually develop. But people don't often make it that far. They don't get through it. Um, you know, sometimes, like you were saying, familiarity breeds contempt. People criticize us behind our back, or, or uh, you know, there's somebody, uh, our friend is associated with somebody that we don't like, and then we become angry. And um, so, being, a, being in a sustainable relationship means uh, that you can be with a person all the time, everywhere. And that's not possible because we're limited. It's just not possible. Uh, and uh, Prabhupada explains that one of the reasons why relationships don't work out is because uh, the, when you are when you're associating with someone and you think you're getting along, it's because you're you're both in the same mode. So people who are in the mode of goodness generally, while they're in the mode of goodness, they they're very agreeable. But because the modes are changing, goodness, passion, and ignorance are all the time fighting for supremacy, you may wake up the next day and the person is in the mode of ignorance. And you're still in the mode of goodness and you're like, mm, somehow or other you're not communicating. Or passion and ignorance, or goodness and passion.
compassion. Prabhupada says that when you're not getting along or when you're finding friction, it's because each of you are under a different mode of nature, and it's really the modes that are conflicting. It's not you. It's just you're riding on the modes of nature, and that's creating disharmony. So, uh, a, a real friend is a friend that is trying to help their friend reestablish their forgotten relationship with Krishna. That's a real friend. Is someone who is not trying to attract you to them, but to help you uh, have a relationship with Krishna. And parents are good at this. Responsible parents are good at this because generally children, uh, young children, are under the mode of ignorance. And if parents are, uh, you know, it's really hard to elevate children from the mode of ignorance. And so often parents who are in the mode of ignorance themselves will just indulge them because it's too hard with all the nagging and, you know, the kids want this and the kids want that. Um, but a parent who is situated in the mode of goodness or even the mode of passion, they know if my duty is is to try and elevate them a little bit closer to God. So even if they bring them from just destructive ignorance into in activities that aren't useless, they might say, teach them something. It's even better than just having a child run wild and destroying things is to engage them in something like learning to read learning to paint, learning to uh, garden, learning the craft, learning anything. That's more in the mode of passion. In the mode of goodness, then a parent might uh, try to engage them in devotional activities or teach them something. And in this way, they are the real friend of the child, even though the child may not appreciate the parents are elevating them. Uh, it's a tug of war in some ways, because as long as we are under the influence of material energy, we will have this struggle uh, because we're envious. The modes of material nature are all the time competing and trying to undermine um, our love for Krishna. In fact, uh, it says in the Bhagavatam that we really do need to ignore the mind in order to listen to the heart because the mind is always telling us uh, not to serve Krishna. So. I'm going to stop here a minute. I'm aware of the time. I know it's late. I know you all are probably tired too. And wonder if there's a question or a comment or a uh, reflection you have about these three ways we can be Krishna and that we are simultaneously chanting, Krishna, please engage me in your service. And at the same time, we're like, gosh, I'd like to just eat and sleep all day. <laughs> yeah. Um, what would you advise in a situation like... Um, can, you, work, can you speak a little louder? I work uh, in, in the work and then uh, I, I'm not... The people don't know that I follow Krishna consciousness. However, I have to still work with them. And, uh, there's a lot of uh, enmity, maybe envy, I'm not sure. Backbiting, gossip. Uh, not so much that, but just perhaps... Um, not, they don't like me. <laughs> they don't like you. <laughs> okay. That's so unfortunate. What would you advise? Uh, I don't want to really tell them that I'm a conscious person, I don't tell but I still have to work with them. It's just a situation I cannot tell them. And so your question is how do you start, survive in a situation that is hostile? It sounds like it's hostile. That people are hostile, and are they hostile with each other, or are they hostile no. with just you? It's just two. 
two people against me. <laughs> and you don't know why? I know, because they're not Krishna conscious, because they're very ignorant. Right. Well, Prabhupada said we shouldn't dis- disturb the minds of the ignorant. The people who are, who are uh, under the modes of material nature, Prabhupada likened them to animals. So if you have an animal and uh, you can't really talk to them, you can't convince an animal to chant Hare Krishna, what, what do you do to tame an animal? What can you do? <laughs> Maybe, yeah, wild animals. But if you're trying to, to develop trust with an animal, obviously, uh, what do you do? It's probably communicate with it, whether it's an animal or a person. Okay, and but what, what do we do with animals first? When we figure out in the wild, what do you do? When you want to have a squirrel come over, what would you do? Okay. Huh? You don't, you don't give them any stimulation back. You just sort of... Feed them, feed them. No, feed them up. Feed them. Feed them, right? I mean, every animal responds to food, right? A squirrel, a bird. Uh, in the wild, they don't trust you, but they definitely... Uh, reciprocate with food, and they'll keep coming back, right? So that's our secret weapon, really, for food. And if, they, if you're feeling that they're hostile, you might need to find a way to get beyond the presenting issue. You know, it's very hard when, when you're the object of someone's uh, hostility. But perhaps this is a test, maybe a way that Krishna is helping you to learn something. Um, there's no accident somehow, and uh, but this may be your Prabhu Desh where it's your job to spread Krishna consciousness in that spot, and uh, maybe that's their only opportunity to meet a devotee, even though you don't say it. They may notice there's something different about you, and they're frightened. But food is a really good thing. Is there anything else we can think of that we could do for somebody who's an animal besides food? Love. Love. And how would we... Tell, tell me what that means. What does love look like? Caring. Caring? Like how? How would you care about two people who are hostile? Um, uh, finding their needs. Okay. Finding out their needs? Yeah. How would you do that if you're working with them? Um, and they're being hostile? Uh, try to communicate with them. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining you probably tried that, right? <laughs> and they're pretty mean. Right. Yes. It's hard to say that. Conflict it's resolution. easy to say that, it's hard to Talk about that. Yeah, the conflict resolution, uh, it's, it's, um, it's nothing but, it says that we all have friends or enemies, frenemies. Frenemies? Oh, I like that. Frenemies. So you have a formal conflict resolution. Yeah. Which doesn't give the solution, but it's a, it's a way to get two people together who have conflict with each other. It doesn't give the permanent solution, though. It doesn't always. I mean, we look at the Mahabharata. Maybe some of you read Mahabharata, right? And when you read the Mahabharata, you'll see so many of that. The Pandavas are living in a home of people who didn't want them there. What an awkward thing. If you have cousins who you're living with and they don't want you there, you're not welcome, right? You're feeling not welcome. They're actually trying to kill you. And uh, try as Krishna might and uh, to try and have a conversation for conflict resolution, they wouldn't have it. So, so there are envious people that, that are in the world that may be not even able to have a conversation. Um, but, but still, 
Mataji here is in a very difficult situation. They may not even take your food, right? If you if you offer it to them. Um, yeah, that works. Prashaman works. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that because I know that's a that's an awful experience to be in a place where you're feeling hated or hostile. But one thing I've learned uh, dealing with all kinds of people is that underneath that hostility is really fear. There's something fearful. Uh -huh. And so you have to be the bigger person to uh, help them see that you're a safe person. And it may well be when they say nasty things to be able to engage it rather than run away. Because we, we tend to want to shut down because we feel rejected. Um, especially when, when I go room to room, sometimes you go, get out, we don't want a chaplain in here, I don't know it. They'll just kick you out. I don't. I know you, child. I know you people. I don't want anything about God or religion or anything. And instead of running away, which is what I want to do, because you know, I'm so insulted, is that I will play with it. I will see. Okay. Well, tell me a little bit about the God that you don't know or you don't want to hear about. Tell me. It sounds like you have a story behind that. It sounds like you've been hurt by somebody in the church, maybe, and that's why. Tell me that story. And what I find is, is if I can get past that insult and keep going as if they haven't insulted me, they will tell me their story and they'll be so happy that we and apologetic even that they have been so insulting. An open-ended question. What? An open-ended question. Good, yes. If you're in a conflict with somebody, yeah. the worst thing you can do is try to move away. And it doesn't mean the other person is toxic, you might be toxic, they could be telling exactly the same thing about you. And if I was saying to my own child, I was saying, never walk away from that. You approach it and say, do we have a problem? Can we resolve it? Because nice. I don't understand. Is it me? Put the blame on yourself. Is it me? You're amazed at how people turn around. Mm -hmm. And within five minutes, you can resolve it. And you may never resolve it. Oil and water sometimes don't mix. But at least it's out in the open and you're not thinking. Because the mind is your enemy. True. If you're in a close vicinity with somebody you're not getting on, I couldn't think of anything worse. Yeah, I, I, I used to have in my mind as a joke, I wanted to uh, make, you know, that people go to somebody's house and you've got a carpet, a, a carpet there that says welcome. I wanted to make it unwelcome. Yeah. Or skull and crossbones. <laughs> because it's sometimes better to keep people out. Yeah. And you don't want everybody in anyway. And I think you have to be artificially inclined to make friends with somebody believing they're not worth it. Yeah. It's not worth it. Well, it sounds like you have plenty of experience. It's not worth that energy. Yeah. You know, it's not. And if you want a friend, be a friend. That's the best place. Okay, to that sounds like a bumper sticker. <laughs> you want a friend for you or, or a t-shirt, right? Yeah. Okay, any other comments or questions or reflections? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, another point that you raised was this could be situations which you might come across at work. Uh, from my experience at work is that uh, if somebody's you know, this sort of hostility was you know, uh, not very friendly attitude towards you. If they run into a work-related problem and you can help them out with that, that might reverse the relationship and help them foster a good relationship. Yeah. So that is to try and try and be, to yeah. find a way to help. That is where your hostilities and, and ego is there. Give us the suggestions that might help them no, yeah. figure out the problem. Yeah. Kill them with kindness, right? <laughs> Prophet said the best way to
to make a person, a puffed up person humble is to be more humble than them. And what happens is, if you've ever, if you've ever been mean to someone and they've been really humble back, not, they haven't retaliated, inside you feel really stupid. You feel really embarrassed. So that's a great way to disarm somebody who's been arrogant or to help them in spite of themselves. Because that's what Krishna's doing. Krishna loves us in spite of ourselves. We do so many stupid things. Krishna just keeps loving us. So we have to share that. What else? Any other thoughts? Or, yeah. You have to speak up because we don't have a... I'm just asking you a general question. I was talking to one of my friends. Loud, loud, loud. I was talking to one of my friends and uh, she don't know that I totally converted into vegetarian, not eating any egg or meat. I don't eat meat before, but yeah. I used to eat egg, but I stopped that one too. I'm not giving uh, egg to my kids also. And she was telling that, um, okay, it's good you stop eating meat, but why don't you give egg? Because egg, egg is good in vitamin B12 and iron. But, okay, I didn't reply the answer, but um, so I was not what I have to say. It's like, I don't want to go back eating egg, but I was having a worry, like, how, like, is it going to cause problems if you are having that? Is it causing problems not to eat eggs because I missed that last piece? <coughs> well, you, I didn't catch your whole thing. You, were, you yeah, said, I don't, eat, I don't eat eggs. And there was some woman you, who said, well, I get why you don't eat meat. Why don't you eat eggs? Because they have so many... Because, you, because you're, like, uh, you're eating plant-based and your body needs vitamin B12, which is essential for Energy, like one of the basic energy. Like if you don't have vitamin B12, you will be weak and really tired. And so your and question. Then, and she's saying like for the kids development age, it's until they reach certain age, vitamin B12 is important. So I don't know. Like, and she's saying none of the plant based have vitamin B12. So. So you're asking me whether. <laughs> You should be eggs. <laughs> <laughs> no, what could be the supplement? Like buy B12 supplement. That's the best. All <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, eating eggs is not the solution. Whatever it is, it's not. And I, I'm not a nutritionist myself, but I do know that uh, pretty much everything nourishment you can get is in the hemp and milk and ghee. You know, vitamin D. And uh, I, I know uh, that when you eat green vegetables, that supplies vitamin K. And, but it doesn't give you vitamin K2, which you absolutely need to uh, have healthy gums and teeth and all of that. And the only way you can get that is through dairy, and particularly ghee and hints uh, milk. And so... Uh, People live on milk, you know that from India. Elders and young people, children, because they know everything you need is there. So uh, I don't think eggs is a, I don't think that's an issue for someone who's eating a balanced yoga diet. Kitri pretty much is a balanced thing too. Uh, fruit, uh, I wouldn't worry about it. There's a lot of reasons why we don't eat eggs, but people do ask that question. What's wrong with eggs? They're not fertilized. They're just, you know, what's wrong? It's like, 
And you're not killing anybody. Do you get that question sometimes from people who say, why don't you eat eggs? And I told my grandmother, who's no longer living, and she said, you totally ruined my attraction for eggs when you told me this. But it totally... Is, you know, I tell them, well, we believe that eggs are just uh, the menstruation of a chicken. Do you want to eat that? It's like eating poop. Why would you eat that? And my grandmother's like, ew. <laughs> but she never ate any eggs. I mean, that's in fact what it is. It's an it's a, it's a excrement from the chicken. It's an unused tissue. Uh, why would you want to eat that? For even if you needed vitamin B12. And it's really just excrement. So I tell people that straight up. That, that totally ends the conversation. That's the end of it. Okay. So you need to be a little bold sometimes and push back on some of these theories because they're just, they're just propaganda. That's really what it is. There is an example in the south of India uh -huh. of a girl who was a vegetarian, who is a vegetarian. She was a wrestling champion. Wrestling champion, okay. And she was eating a vegetarian. Oh yeah, we have so many athletes. Yeah. Yeah, eggs, and they really make you stink. I mean, boy, eggs are stinky. Very hard to digest as well. Anything else about eggs? <laughs> <laughs>
Sometimes you'll see somebody who's suffering and you start making a theory about it. My mom does this, my mom does this real good. She's doing that all day about people who, you know, why they're, I wonder why they're, they're um, they didn't come over and I wonder why they didn't go to school and they're fabricating theories about other people. Who cares for it? Doesn't make your life better, doesn't change anything. So these are just wasted thoughts. Uh, just worry about your own thing. Get yourself back to God as quick as possible. Anything else? Yeah. You, you mentioned about the conflicts of the different modes. Remember, you look at mm. the two people uh, doesn't look like not cannot get along because they're two different modes. Now, sometimes um, when there's a conflict with goodness and uh, passion, for example, now is it good for the person who is a member of goodness to go down the passion of the conflict, who feels kind of or is it better to uh, expect other people to live to the world? No. Well, I think you have to give up expectations altogether. You can't expect anything. And then there's no, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a different things. So, the, the point is, is you need to situate yourself into pure goodness. And then you'll know how to navigate a relationship with someone who's in the mode of ignorance. Um, certainly, a, a person who's in the mode of passion and ignorance doesn't know what to do because they're completely deluded by these modes. But if you are the bigger person, the person who is themselves situated in not only goodness but even pure goodness, you will not be reactive because you'll understand that everything moves by this, the um, will of the Supreme. If you read in the Srimad Bhagavatam in the purport of the King Chitraketa story, it's a really good story about a king who had a bunch of hundred wives and they were always fighting, finally killed his only son out of envy, like we're talking about. And Prabhupada explains in the purport how uh, that, that when a man, particularly a person, is, does not have their senses under control, then the world, the, their family members, their kingdom also will not be able to respect them and stuff. So what you're seeing in the way people treat you is really a reflection of your relationship with Krishna. So when a person is situated in Krishna consciousness and has their senses under control, by a mystic arrangement, everybody, all the modes of nature are also responding to that. So people who are in a mode of passion or ignorance are probably be less likely to be conflicting because you're you're in a higher mode. It's not a good idea to not just decide, well, I want to be your friend, so I'm going to go down to the mode of passion. That won't help anybody. Because uh, people in the mode of passion also um, are fighting as well. But the uh, best thing is to situate in the mode of goodness because then you can pause. You have the cool head enough to pause to know what's happening. Oh, okay, this is a person in the mode of passion, and I'm not going to be reactive, I'm going to respond. It means you get to choose, because you're not just triggered by that. Does that make sense? So this is why chanting goes rounds early in the morning. If you can, hearing, as soon as the alarm bell goes off in the morning, push that button on your iPod with a 
lecture or a kirtana, immediately get that mind above those uh, modes of ignorance uh, so that your day starts on a different uh, level. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, li- linked to that point, Mataji, Hare Krishna, um, when meaning if, if you are if you are striving to be in the mode of goodness and you're able to let go and you don't have resentment or angst against someone who's not of a compatible frequency with you, uh, but it's affecting you for some reason. Maybe because we are not in pure, meaning I'm not in pure goodness, you know, striving to get there, or goodness at least. So is it okay for certain people, for whatever reason, if they are a vexation to your spirit, you don't have anger or resentment, you don't wish them harm, but you keep a little bit of a distance. Like although they try, you know, sometimes people for whatever reason like being in your space, and this applies to devotees and non-devotees, but is it okay if for whatever reason maybe we are not strong, resilient enough in our bhakti uh, to, 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 to maintain a distance? Whatever works for you. I, you know, I can't. I'm not in your situation. So yeah, I, I think I think that's more for actually for non-devotees. It's pretty clear cut. You can do that. I think with devotees, um, like I'm not encountering a situation at the moment, but I'm, I was just reflecting on what you were sharing, and uh, I heard the lecture online as well. Yeah. So with devotees, it's harder because there's a prad and so on and so forth. But yeah, how do you then gauge? Because we have our nature as well. We have our vice, uh, meaning uh, shortcomings as well. So how do we navigate with devotees specifically? With non-devotees, it's simpler. Yeah, just navigate very carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, on another note, it's really important when we find ourselves triggered or uh, feeling angry or envious, it's good to ask ourselves, what is that about? What's underneath that? You know, if you're finding yourself angry or hurt, then you want to ask the question, where is it coming from? Because we have all these um, sanskars in our brain that are impressions from early life. Sometimes I don't like a person or my mind is repulsed. That's, there's like six, six or seven different emotions. You have sad, mad, glad, afraid, disgust, and surprise. So you might feel disgusted or angry. Um, generally, it has nothing to do with the person in front of you. It's, it's a triggered memory of sanskara. Maybe that person reminds you of Uncle Fred, like or Uncle whatever, or Auntie something, and you've been hurt by them. Or there's a personality type that is reminiscent of a, 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 a moment where you were hurt or traumatized or abused. So that's important to identify and take ownership of your own attitude and behavior rather than projecting them on other people. Because it's generally not other people. It's really you fighting with you. True. And sometimes, like you have said, it's personalities as well. Because recently, we are, like, we are doing me and Siddharth, some personality tests as well, just for self-awareness. Myers-Briggs. Like Myers-Briggs. And Enneagram. Yeah. And this, the DISC model. Yeah. And yeah, so if we were... An S character, you know, an introvert, which I am, you know, and then you have this dominant extrovert that you have to deal with. So it's nobody's fault, but there's a personality in compact. Here's the thing about that Myers Briggs you should know, because a lot of people will say, well, I'm just an introvert, you got to deal with it, that's me, you know, I'm a sensate, 
The reality with that, if you really want to use it as a self-awareness tool, whatever your personality type, you need to be cultivating the shadow, the opposite. So if you're an extrovert, and you tend to talk all the time and don't listen very well, or you're an introvert that doesn't talk a lot and gets really turned off by people talking all the time, you need to practice the opposite thing because you're out of balance, right? And we have both qualities in us. So instead of thinking, well, you've got to deal with me because that's who I am. That's not who you are because you're a perfect, pure spiritual being. You're not your mind. You're not your body. But if you want to use a tool like that as an instrument to, to become whole and integrated, you need to say, look at those four types and then study the opposite and then work on that because then you become a complete human being. And these are shadows, yeah. Yeah. Anything else before we let you go to bed? They all must be tired. Not. He's ecstatic. I'm yeah. going to make a comment. The, the introvert is probably the extrovert. The extrovert is probably the introvert. Did you say that you're an introvert? Introvert, yeah. You could have given me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am, I am. I am, I am, actually. I'm, I'm an extrovert. But that's not true. I'm an introvert. I'm a very quiet. I prefer my own company to be alone. Mm. I live with the impression of people. Mm. Anyway, it's a big topic. Yeah. All right, looks like we're finished. Hare Krishna. Thank you very much. She has lined up different people. I know Pralatananda Swami is here. I, I, when I'm at home, I have Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Ram Hare Hare.